Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deeper Signals Shortcast, where we explore the emerging themes and ideas in the world of talent assessment, coaching, and technology. In today's episode, we'll be exploring authenticity. Why do we talk about it and value it so much? What is the authenticity trap? Is authenticity overrated? And does it even exist? As one Forbes article simply put it, authenticity is having a moment right now. As society, we value authenticity more than ever, making it a company value on our wall, uh, encouraging others to bring their whole selves to work, just be yourself. We hear this all the time. In our research at Deeper Signals, we asked the question, how important is it for you to bring your whole self to work? And 66% of respondents said it is very important. However, We know that large-scale scientific studies show there may be more benefits to faking it or impression management. We know that our authentic self is not necessarily our best self at work. Maybe some of us don't. In fact, I saw a new article yesterday titled The Perils of Being Yourself. Yes, that's a teaser. (laughs) We'll get into that in a moment. Um, But why do we value authenticity? And to answer some of these questions and to maybe debate this uh, topic a bit, I am very genuinely and uh, I am authentic when I say this. I am thrilled to be joined by two of the brightest minds in IO psychology and talent management. Um, They're widely known as HR industry leaders, authors, speakers, coaches, and for the most well-attended mic drop sessions at SIOP. (laughs) The one and the only Miriam Ort and Tomas Chamorro per music. Thank you both for being here today. Thank Thank you. you. Great to be here. What an introduction. That was like a whole (laughs) podcast and I want to continue listening. I have a million questions for you about this topic. And as psychologists, you know, I think maybe we should start with a definition of this construct because I actually think this is where a lot of the the confusion uh, stems from. Uh, how do researchers define it? How do how does the average layperson define this? And uh, you know, the literal translation of authentic is an original, not a copy. But I think it means a lot more than that in our minds today. So Miriam, I want to hear from you first. How do you define authenticity? I don't think it has one definition, Stephanie. And I think that is exactly the issue. And I think that is why there is so much disagreement when in fact, people are not necessarily really disagreeing on underlying principles, but they're attaching different meanings, right? To your point, the dictionary definition is not particularly helpful in this context. And when you think about authenticity at work, I think what you really see is, you know, two very different camps for good reason. So I think some people define being authentic as, you know, staying away from corporate speak, staying away from doing things that they fundamentally do not believe in and that they think are wrong, but might be tied to a culture. I think about a lot of the work that, you know, Tomas has done in terms of incompetent leadership, right? And sort of behaviors that are associated with leaders that are actually not positive at all. And I think some people think of authenticity as being able to break away from some of those culturally entrenched norms. On the other hand, if you look at a lot of the leaders historically and the researchers that have talked about authentic leadership at work, what they really are often referring to is, you know, choiceful behavior, 
behavior that engages people. And that can certainly be a very positive thing. And so I think you have a lot of different perceptions. And I think if we can break through some of that in this discussion today, a lot of the different camps are probably not really that far apart in terms of what's valuable and what actually is overrated. I think you're right. I think there's a lot of nuance. And Tomas, do you agree with that? Do you have anything to add when it comes to separating out definitions? Yeah. I mean, I think Miriam's point is really, really important, which is this has been a kind of worms or something that traditionally and still today, social psychologists and scientists don't want to touch. It's very complicated to provide universal or kind of a Uh, culturally invariant and meaningful definition of authenticity. It does mean different things to different people. So I think the second part of your question, Stephanie, on what it means in general or to most people, and I think some psychologists would still identify with some of these definitions, I would highlight four things. I think we say we're being authentic when we're being true to our values and we're acting in ways that are Um, You know, the opposite of being a fraud or just violating some basic rules of conduct and ethical and moral rules that are meaningful for us. Right. And of course, yours are different from mine and they differ according to culture, religion and affiliation. But, you know, being true to your values would be one. The second one, more superficial, identifying with the persona that you put on. Right. So to the degree that, for example, at work. What I do is epitomizing or representative of who I want to be. And I feel proud of me as a sales guy or me as a performer or me as a manager. You know, I can say, yes, I'm I'm being myself or I like what I'm doing. Right. But let's let's agree that that requires a lot of elaboration, coaching and preparation. The third is the one that is quite reckless in a way, but it's still important. Right. You're being authentic when you're not feeling the pressure to conform to any social etiquette and you're just letting go, you know, in a way when you're, when you're displaying the uncensored, unfiltered and uninhibited version of yourself, you know, think about too many drinks in a Thanksgiving dinner or at Christmas. And, you know, when we see that version of you, the version that maybe your best friends and your close relatives or your husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend see, you know, that authentic version of you is one that I think, Maybe only four or five people in the world have, have learned to put up with or tolerate. Maybe they love it, but, you know, I think, you know, it's more that they have learned to get used to it or tolerate. It. And then the final one is really important is how authentic are you in the eyes of others? I think other people would call you authentic when they think that you're trustworthy and honest and they don't think that you're lying or being fake polite or sort of engaging in, in deception of sorts. And I think it's a lot easier to think about authenticity from the eye of the observer or from another's perspective than from the perspective of oneself. I don't even know what my self or authentic self is. I think I left part of it at the bar yesterday, late at night, <laughs> and I haven't found it this morning when I woke up, although I did have a headache. So who am I anyway? It requires 15 years of psychotherapy to find out. Maybe then all you know is that you're neurotic or psychotic and life's tough. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, I want to dig into all of these um, different authentic selves. Um, and I really want to hear more about, you know, being authentic versus being perceived as being authentic. I think that's really important. But when, you know, this demand for authenticity, people are saying, I want to feel like I can be myself at work. This is very important to me. What type of authenticity are they referring to? Do they really want to be their uncensored version, you know, of themselves at work? Or is it something else? I think some people do, Stephanie, and, you know, certainly, you know, my years as an HR professional, I think there are a lot of people that have used authenticity and the buzz around authenticity to justify that and say, well, I need to be who I really am and that's really important, but that's actually not true. And I think the research, and Tomas, I think you were referring to, to some of this research in your comments, the research actually shows that how people perceive you is more important in terms of how they assess an effective leader. And strong self-moderators, and I wouldn't call that people faking it, I might call it people striving to bring their best version of themselves, mm-hmm. but strong self-moderators who filter their behavior are perceived to be stronger leaders at work. And that has been measured and researched. And they are perceived as more authentic as well, correct? They are perceived as more authentic, exactly. And so I think sometimes, you know, folks that are asking to just come as I am, I don't know that that's authentic leadership. I'd say that's lazy leadership where maybe they're not, don't have the appetite to put the work in to show up as an effective leader for their colleagues and their teams. Well, I I think that's a great point. And I think it's confusing when people are successful and they, you know, feel that they are successful because of who they are. They've gotten this far because of how they do things and they don't change when really they've become successful despite who they are. And so to lead authentically, how important is self-awareness? It's a loaded question. Yeah, I can take that. I think it's actually a very deep existential question. I think, you know, when we're talking about authentic leadership, I think that the main angle here is how is that leader perceived, especially by their teams or direct reports, you know, the people that have ongoing day-to-day data on what their boss does, right? And I think that even though we have glorified and sort of glamorize the notion of authentic leadership. Fundamentally, what they care about is whether they see someone with integrity that practices what they preach and who shows a certain degree of consistency that creates you know, safety and familiarity and structure rather than someone who is a liability or an agent of stress. And I want to give you know some fictional example, right? So if you think about Tony Soprano, the fictional mafia boss, you know, by most standards, he would be very authentic. I mean, as soon as he's angry, he kills you or he smashes a TV screen or a computer. He has no impulse control. And, you know, you can see what he thinks, although occasionally he engages in kind of poker games to, you know, profit from his business. Uh, That's not who people would want to have as a boss. Who you want to have as a, as a boss is actually someone who, from the psychological and scientific literature perspective, would display emotional intelligence. And you actually do that by being able to control your emotions and, you know, be um, a beacon of calmness and stability and actually deal with yourself. And I think no matter what paradigm or area or theory of coaching you espouse to, 
we know the one kind of universal aspect of coaching is that if you want to develop yourself as a leader and coach yourself or improve, you don't only need self-awareness, but you also need to work on yourself and in a way learn to go against your nature. You become a better, more complete, more all-rounded leader if you can actually go against your nature and do less of what you naturally do or more of what you naturally don't do. And that, in a way, is not very authentic. And this requires constant work because we're always, you know, changing, growing, adapting to our our environments. And so it's continually exploring that, getting feedback from others. Do you think that too many of us have a too rigid self-concept and that gets in the way and backfires when it comes to showing your authentic self? I think it it can. And I want to build, Stephanie, if I can, off of something that Tomas, you know, was just, you know, saying which is if you look at um, Bill George, who actually wrote the book on authentic leadership, he came back, I can't remember, but it was, it was a few years ago, and hearing all the criticism, you know, Adam Grant wrote that article about, you know, be yourself is terrible advice for something along those lines. And he came back and wrote an article and essentially really aligns with what Tomas just said, which he really talked about, you know, authentic leadership is self-moderating, it is thinking about how you show up, right, for, for those that you work with. And then the second thing he talked about is that development aspect and mm-hmm. leaders working on themselves to get better. So it's really an aspirational version of yourself. And the, the reason that I think it's really important that we think about that is because I think we all have to tell ourselves narratives to help us along. And there are different words and different messages that are comfortable to different people. And so for some people saying, yes, you have to fake it, that resonates and it helps them grow and develop and get better. For other people, that bumps up against their values. And I think it's important that we're able to then reframe that and say, it isn't necessarily about faking it. It is about the aspirational aspect of being a better leader, how do you see yourself as the best leader you could be? And that means self-moderating and growing to work to be that leader. That's great. So how do you do that as HR leaders, as coaches, when someone says, I I can't behave in that way, I feel like an imposter. It goes against my values. How do you help people change their behaviors while maintaining who they feel they are, their values? feeling authentic, but making small changes to be more effective leaders? I, I think there's, there are two things that I have seen be really effective. One you mentioned, and that is feedback. Feedback is a really powerful tool because it can help people realize that what they think is sort of them, right? Their personality, their style is really not landing with the intent that they have, right? So they think I'm being honest, I'm being myself, I'm being real. And then you give them feedback. It can be 360 feedback or other forms of feedback that help them start to perceive themselves from the eyes of others. And then they realize, actually, that's not me. That's not who I am. I'm not the rude person who cuts everyone off and is only interested in my own opinion. Um, Actually, maybe I need to change my behaviors to align with how I intend to show up because Mm -hmm. how I'm showing up today is not really representing that. So feedback is one. I think the other is the how. You know, there are a lot of ways that people can moderate 
and change their behaviors. There are a lot of ways that they can think about how they engage with others. And it doesn't have to be adopting a persona that's completely false. It can be finding the balance between what is going to be acceptable, what is going to be appreciated in the context in which one is operating that doesn't feel you know, completely fake or completely dishonest. And usually that's where the nuance is, right? Usually there's a path through where those kind of two goals can intersect. Yeah, I, I just want to pick up on the on the rigid self-concept question, Stephanie, because yeah. there's a really interesting but fairly obscure concept in social psychology called self-complexity, right? So individuals differ in their degree of self-complexity. On the one hand, you have someone who, you know, you know one thing about them and you can predict everything else they do, right? So they're kind of very one-dimensional, if you want to say. So imagine someone, you know where they live and you can predict what kind of music they listen to, who they vote for, how they behave, what car they drive, etc. We can all think of examples. And actually, they might be on the left or on the right. Sure. But, you know, the closer you are to a one-dimension, the lower your self-complexity. Mm-hmm. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have someone with very high self-complexity who they just have a very rich and diverse range of experiences. They hang out with people who think very differently. They have habits that are not necessarily uh, compatible or consistent, if you think about that. And, you know, in a way, it's tempting to look at that person and say, well, who are they really, you know? Because we have difficulties thinking about people in these multidimensional ways. But actually, that's probably the person you want in a world that actually nurtures or pretends to nurture diversity and wants to actually have people who don't just think differently, but accept others for who they are. And, you know, they might be authentically that way because they're just very open to new experiences and very eclectic and very creative. But in a way, we should all be trying to force ourselves to exit our filter bubbles and be more of that. And that, again, doesn't come naturally. You know, for me, it's very easy to hang out with people who think like you and are like you. And then you're in the kind of in the first bucket of example, you know. So I think it's not even just about the rigidity or of our self-concept that we have this desire to work out who we are. I am a lawyer. I am a doctor. I am an Argentine. I am a Catholic or whatever. And that simplifies things a lot. So it's really about trying to broaden ourselves and become, you know, a more diverse version of ourselves. It's almost diversity at the individual level, yes. level the group level that we should be pursuing. I love that. And that's interesting because it's like, which person is more authentic, the person you can predict or the person that you can't both, but which person is perceived as more authentic. And you mentioned earlier, you know, we, we want leaders where we can predict their behavior. We see more consistency. So, you know, what does that mean for the leaders that aren't as predictable and consistent? How can they be perceived as more authentic? Yeah. You know, but I think to be a leader in politics or famous environment, or increasingly in an executive or organizational setting, it really helps people. It helps you if you cultivate your brand. You know, it's a very narcissistic and superficial concept, but it does work, right? It's like, what's your brand? And then we're like, oh, is is it authentic? I mean, what it means is like, have you created a persona Mm -hmm. that others can predict and connect with? And that's going to be a lot easier if you only show one consistent dimension you know, and you hide a lot of the other private aspects of your life and you don't bring them to the table because otherwise, you know, if you found out that this person has 
interests, attitudes, or hobbies that you didn't expect or you don't agree with, you're going to disconnect, you know? And that's why politicians are more successful if they become very consistent and very predictable. So I think, anyway, it's important to keep these two (laughs) angles in mind, the self-perspective and the observer perspective. I would just add one thing, which I think context is really important. And so, you know, in the example of politics, right, that's often someone that we might not interact with frequently. And so our perception of them is really based on maybe some sound bites, right, or some debates that they're in. And so that simple, consistent message is going to land as more authentic. In the workplace, where we do have more complex interactions, that's where some of that can sometimes fall flat because context is so important. And so in that environment, you know, what we tend to see is that leaders who can read the room, if you will, who can assess a situation and then adapt their behavior to that context, almost thinking about it as, you know, what does this situation call for from me? Sometimes it calls for decisive leadership. Sometimes it calls for somebody who's perceived as listening. Sometimes it calls for empathy. And in a work environment, leaders that can read that and then adapt their behaviors to that context have been shown to be perceived as more authentic. So do you think authenticity is being your best self in a specific context? I think we should strive to be our best selves. I think it certainly is being our best selves for what is needed, if you will, for an engaging, Mm -hmm. positive interaction. And I think that second part is important because sometimes we might have to sacrifice a little bit of our perception of self to address and supply what's needed in that context. Yeah, I would say that, you know, it's really important, desirable and difficult to be your best self in a given situation, particularly if it's a relevant and high stakes situation. But I don't think we need to try to fit that into the definition of authenticity. (laughs) You know, we have this halo tendency. If something is good, then it's everything, you know, and it happened with EQ, with agility and with authenticity. No, you know, that's important, but not everything good belongs to authenticity. And some aspects of authenticity might not be that good, you know, that effective. I think Any behavior, if you take it to an extreme, you start to see the undesirable or counterproductive tendencies. I was thinking as Miriam was giving the last example of, you know, when we say this person is just a politician, we mean that they're so inauthentic because they're reading the room so well Mm -hmm. that they're a chameleon, right? And they would act and they would kind of put on persona A in a situation, but then B. And the consequences of that, we don't like it because the question is, what do they actually stand for? Who are they really? And they're just, you know, wanting to please and engaging in sort of excessive fake diplomacy, right? But at the other extreme, if you have someone who is totally careless (laughs) and doesn't care about the room or other people's feelings and they're just themselves, well, you know, you're Most of the times that not gonna, that's not going to work. Yeah, exactly. And if it works, it's because you have such degree of status, authority, or privilege that you are entitled to that. But even in those cases, I would imagine there's advantages in toning it down and caring about what other people feel and think, because you're going to hurt them and you're going to you know, have a negative impact on them otherwise. So, you know, I think there is an optimal in-between level or mid-range point that enables us to pay attention to others, read the room, but not be an imposter, not be a fraud. And 
we don't need the concept of authenticity to fit into that. It's just interpersonal effectiveness. So you're getting at the authenticity trap, right? Too authentic, you're oversharing, telling too much about yourself. It's unprofessional, it's too much. Not enough, and you're hard to read. You're um, not connecting you know, with a group in a genuine way. So what advice would you give leaders who, who feel this dilemma, who want to share more about them, but maybe they're more private people. They don't, that's not comfortable to them, but they want to be seen as authentic. How do you find that right balance? I think you hit on the word, which is balance. It is going to be all about balance. Just like Tomas said, authenticity isn't the solve for anything. There is no one solve for any of these issues. It's finding the right balance. But I do think soliciting feedback, which I referenced earlier, is really helpful. It can help someone identify whether they're achieving the balance they want. We are the worst assessors of ourselves. So often we rely on our perception. Oh, okay, that was uncomfortable because I think I overshared. If you're someone that's not comfortable sharing, you're probably off in your assessment that you overshared. And then I'd certainly say on the opposite, you know, those that are big proponents of bringing their whole self to work think, well, I was balancing it, but I want people to know who I am. And they probably saw way too much of who you are. And so I think finding trusted resources that interact with us that we can rely on for candid feedback is really important. And the other thing that I would just call out is vulnerability, which we could do a whole podcast on that topic because that also has its own moment and its own following. But I think paying some attention, some of Brene Brown's work in this space is, I think, really valuable. Regardless of the balance, finding some spaces to show some vulnerability can be really helpful for somebody who's you know trying to ensure that they bring that balance of being authentic without sharing too much. And people feel this need to show more authenticity because of the popularity of just the term itself and the demand. You know, people saying, oh, I just want to work with leaders or companies that are real, that, you know, tell it like it is, that are genuine. And of course, the definition makes things tricky with what they're actually asking for. But why do you think this demand has increased or why are we hearing about this topic more and more? And is our society different from others? Well, you know, I do think that the authenticity cult much like the charisma cult or the confidence cult, if you have to find a place where it's kind of most emblematic or where it fits best, it's not just American society. I would say, you know, the West Coast and LA, right? You know, just be yourself. You're special and you're the hero in your own mind. But by the way, make sure you have a lot of surgery, a lot of makeup, wear these clothes. And, you know, I think (laughs) the consumerist society has invented this version of authenticity which is great, right? Because it's sort of like the cult of the individual. And if you want to stand out and sort of showcase or signal your individuality, you better follow certain rules, which, you know, involve you buying certain things and express your identity through consumerism. And I think there is a fetishism or a consumerist approach to authentic leadership here as well, which is like, you know, we want to consume leaders as if they were a brand. And we want to attach ourselves to them. You know, I work for Tesla. So 
Elon Musk is sort of like a cultish or religious leader for me. And everything he does is authentic, especially when he's smoking weed and tweeting at 4 a.m. and <laughs> changing the price of Bitcoin or the market, right? <laughs> but, you know, that's the exception. And he is exceptional. And if our goal is to inculcate that level of entitlement or self-perceived brilliance to all the young people in the world who could actually make a useful contribution to the labor market, but we're telling them, look, you can be the next Steve Jobs or the next Elon Musk. We're going to have a nation of people who are depressed and they're going to have a reality check. And it's quite irresponsible. You know, there is something called your professional self. You're not paid to just be yourself. You're paid to contribute to society via the work you do in an organization, whether it's yours or someone else's. And that requires you to bring your best behavior. And you shouldn't care as to whether your leader is authentic. You need to care as to whether you can trust them and whether they're going to help you be your best professional self and develop your potential. And how much of that is spontaneous, authentic, unfiltered, Look, I think the only person you should really want to know fully and comprehensively is probably the person you marry or the person you're with. Mm -hmm. And for the rest, it's not necessary. Negotiate the identity that you need to negotiate and just do the best you can. I like that. Negotiate your identity. Would you agree, Miriam? Or why do you think the need or demand for authenticity is on the rise? I do agree. And I would just amplify, you know, we mentioned Twitter to look at social media, you see, you know, people are claiming they want authenticity, but they don't really want authenticity, right? You look at all the influencers on Instagram, those are not candid photos, as we've all seen from some uh, <laughs> recent news cycles, right? Those are, those are managed, right? With, mm -hmm. you know, hours before and after and then photoshopped and all that. So I think sometimes you have to just call BS. Nobody really wants that. I think sometimes what people are expressing is some of the things we talked about, what they're tired of, right? They're tired of corporate speak. There's a lack of trust. There has been research that, you know, over the last decade, trust has eroded in some of our public systems. And so I think that's some of what we're hearing is the frustration of people maybe feeling that they've been lied to, that they can't believe their leaders. But when people say we really want authentic leaders, we want to see your true self, I don't think they really mean that. Do you think they mean, you know, just safety and inclusion and feeling like they can be who they are, maybe not, uh, you know, behave in all these ways, but just be who they are at work without being judged or, you know, feeling included just, and just valued? Included and valued, absolutely. But I think that's where we have to be really thoughtful because, if people's perception of being included and being valued is I can just be who I am and not be judged, you have a fundamental conflict because you're being right. who you are and not being judged is for somebody else going to create an environment where they don't feel they can maybe be who they are and not mm -hmm. be judged. And so in social systems, we all have to moderate to create that environment of inclusion and respect. I might have to not say something that comes to mind so that you can feel respected and included at work. And you might not have to exhibit a behavior that is natural to you so that I can feel respected and included at work. And that moderation does involve some judgment. It does mean that as you know, social beings, we are assessing each other all the time. And I think that's, that's a reality that we have to just reconcile. Interesting. So we might have to decrease yeah. authenticity to increase inclusion. 
Yeah, I mean, th- this is a really important point, right? Because if you truly care about diversity and inclusion, equity, fairness, belonging, plus, 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 right? You have to respect people's right to not bring their whole self to work. Mm-hmm. You have to respect people who, you know, see the job um, as a job and they do their best and they behave, but they have a private self and they don't overshare and they don't care about belonging to the point that they're part of a cult, right? And this is also part of the trap. When we say to someone, an employee, come here and you can be yourself and you're part of this kind of, you know, cult-like community. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a very, very good strategy to get people to never leave, work as much as they can, and, you know, hire people on the basis of very homogeneous values and beliefs, which, of course, makes it a lot easier for managers, right? If everyone right. thinks like me and my team, I just have to, I don't even have to tell them what to do. But then that's not the definition of a diverse or inclusive workplace. And don't expect much creativity if that's your goal. That's a great point because we know if you're hiring for diversity, you need to manage that diversity to increase that cohesion because you will be having just more perspectives and styles in the room that can conflict. So, so managers, I heard probably three examples in the last week of people, you know, who hired new employees and they really, you know, liked them at first in interview, they checked all the boxes, they saw that person's best self, but then, Hey, they're on the job and now they're, they established that rapport. So that person feels, you know, more secure, more liked. So they're starting to be themselves more. And that's a big problem for managers who say, that's not the person I hired. What advice do you give to these managers who start to create an environment where people can be more authentically themselves and then it backfires? I thought first that you were describing a marriage or a relationship, right? <laughs> it was all going well in the first date, second date. But when we moved in together, you know... That's uh, a common tale as well. Toothbrush was not there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, I think we should be honest with ourselves, right? When we think about these issues and any rational, mature, and sort of honest approach to this subject and this content should really discern between what we actually want and what we praise or what we celebrate. And I think what people want is a certain degree of consistency and predictability. If you give a smashing and brilliant interview performance when we are hiring you or considering you for a job, because you rehearse it and you practice and, you know, you're very good in social settings, I expect you to continue faking it or managing impressions for the rest of your career here. I don't want to suddenly say, oh my God, you know, it's like not a team player, antisocial and selfish. So the problem comes not when people stop being themselves or start being themselves, but when they suddenly don't bring to the table or to the game, the best version and the version that people want to see there, you know, and I think, By the way, whatever you do in private and whatever your obscure hobbies are or whatever you do at home should not concern me. This is now a big problem, right? When I said we used to work from home, now we're living at work. There is an intrusion potentially right now Mm -hmm. on people's life. And when you're saying, bring your whole self, are you being authentic? It also means that our privacy is being eroded. So I think, you know, we should be clear about what we want and what we expect. And by the way, the ethical expectation should allow people the right to bring their professional selves to work and leave as many aspects of their private self wherever they feel. And there's the mic drop. What else from you, Miriam? (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry. So you're right. It is a, it is, it is a mic drop. Um, but I would also just call out, it sounds in listening to the question that there's a little bit of naivete, right, on behalf of managers that might think, well, I, you know, I thought I knew them. It's an interview. Interviews are notoriously poor at predicting behaviors and performance. So I think there is a reality that as leaders, we are going to have to continue to coach people, give feedback, help them with their self-awareness. That is our job. Now, if the response is, well, I'm bringing my authentic self, then you have, then you certainly have an issue and that might not be an issue that can be solved um, <laughs> right. with continued employment <laughs> in that situation. But I, I think it is important to realize that none of us are perfect. We're not hiring perfect people. And, you know, we talked about self-moderation. Some people are better than that than others. And as leaders, that's where we have to sometimes step in and help provide that awareness and that coaching. Yeah. And I know we, you know, we haven't even talked about gender, right? But men can are allowed to feel way more entitled to bring their whole selves to any working environment and behave in a much more spontaneous, impulsive, and unfiltered way, which is why when we think about men who overindulge or people who overindulge in authenticity, whether it's Charlie Sheen or Donald Trump or whoever, who are celebrated by other men for doing so, mm-hmm. it's a lot harder to find examples of women doing that. Why? Because the emotional labor, the emotional intelligence and the restraint and social etiquette and social awareness that women need to display is far higher. There is a way bigger tax on women if they wanted to bring their whole self or be authentic at work. I mean, and this it's, it's so obvious, no one even talks about it. So what can companies do to reap the benefits of creating an environment where people feel they can be authentic, but not you know, fall prey to the downside of having everyone not self-monitor and feel too comfortable being themselves? What can organizational leaders do? I'll, I'll share. I'll share three things. You know, one, there are great tools out there that help with awareness. Right? I talked about leadership's responsibility, but in large organizations, that can be very challenging to do at scale. And so, I think tools, you know, whether it's personality assessments or other tools that can help provide self-awareness to folks. That like is the core drivers. Valuable. Oh, self-awareness exactly. at scale. There we go. Um, Some plug. <laughs> because, but that, I mean, that self-awareness, that self-awareness is critical, right? We talked about self-moderation a lot. You yeah. can't moderate what you're not aware of, right? In that vein, feedback and both formal feedback and tools like 360 and informal feedback. So teams that take time to talk about how effective they are, how they're interacting, you know, what's working, what they want to do better. Feedback me- mechanisms are really valuable, so that teams can find that right balance. And then modeling, how leaders show up will set some of the culture of how employees feel like they can set up. And if you have leaders that are falling into that authenticity trap and thinking that it's charming to overshare or overly be themselves, you see that behavior start to become pervasive in the organization. Whereas when you have leaders that bring their professional selves you can also see that set the standard. So I think leadership has a big responsibility to model that balance that we talked about. That's brilliant. So it's all, all comes down, all circles back to self-awareness, feedback, 
and leadership modeling those balanced behaviors. What would you add, Tomas? Yeah, I think feedback is the key here. And, you know, we can talk ages about, you know, the virtues of 360s, assessments, core drivers, of course, uh, tools that can help you understand and frame your identity in a data-driven way that actually helps you understand the implications of your behaviors and where you might be functioning effectively and where you might need to do some work. But I think ultimately, to your question, what can organizations do? I think they need to be responsible when they think about these concepts and these issues. And I think the most important thing, if they start working with their leaders, is that they instill a minimum level of trust and integrity and safety, you know? And if leaders are really worried about whether they come across as authentic or not, well, you know, they can ask others and they can try to get the feedback, but it's much more important that they understand whether they are trustworthy, whether they are competent, and whether they're having a good impact on their teams and their organizations, and you know, and that will require a lot of work, a lot of dedication, a lot of impression management, which does not mean that they need to become a fraud. Everyone wants to know what you stand for, but nobody wants to see the uninhibited and uncensored version of yourself, you know? I get along with Miriam very well, but we don't know everything about each other. And, you know, we're probably going to keep it that way. (laughs) Well, with that, I think, you know, the main takeaway here is maybe let's focus less on, on being ourselves and focus more on understanding ourselves and who our best selves are and how we can do that and being really open Uh, and receptive to feedback from others to figure that out. So I think we gave our audience a lot of practical advice today, helping everyone understand what authenticity is, why it's so important and why it matters and what it means for us as leaders. I think we learned a lot today and I just want to thank you both for these insights and let's keep the conversation going. You can follow our guests on LinkedIn, Tomas Chamar Premusic and Miriam Ort. Thank you so much for being here today. 